right, this morning uh, we will look at the call upon uh, the people of God for our oneness. A couple of weeks ago, a phrase that caught my attention in my own notes, uh, there's a, a very odd thing that happens as I'm typing notes. It usually takes me about two and a half to three hours to type my sermon notes because uh, things just happen with the Lord in that moment. And as I've looked, uh, just in my own reading, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, pastor in England in the 1700s, late 1700s, he said, I discover things as I write. And the writers will just try to write something to get things flowing. Uh, that's why journaling is a very helpful uh, discipline for the people of God, because you begin to discover things. Write out your prayers, write out scripture perhaps, and just kind of get the engine flowing, and, and you'll discover things as you write uh, we, or type. I was typing this. But I, this is what caught my attention. I believe the Lord gave, and I want to expand on today. God doesn't call us to do or experience anything that he hasn't already revealed in himself. A lot of times we think we've been, giving, we've been given these instructions for the Christian life, and it's like putting together a cabinet or something we're not used to. Uh, I, a few, about a month ago, I was putting together a chandelier. And as I was reading the instructions, two lines, one, step like five and then step six, the exact same phrase. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? How, and I'm looking at it. There's a design flaw. It was miserable to try to figure. I had to put it down. I had to wait and then come back to it because it just felt, I, I, I felt I was being tricked. God, God's not tricking us, and he's not giving us these weird instructions for us to figure it out. He's given us himself to walk out the Christian life. He calls us to experience him and walk in him as he is and exists. But this is Jesus, the end of Jesus' prayer in John 17, verses 20 to 26. Here, this is the night that he'll be betrayed. He'll be arrested, betrayed. Everybody will scatter, and he will face the next morning the cross for our sins. And here's his, his words to the Father in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even, even though the world does not know, I know you. And, those, and these know that you have sent me. I made my... I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Holy Spirit, we ask for your gift of illumination so we can make connection points that, that revolutionize our thinking so we might enjoy you and live for you in a renewed way and, and walking in your Spirit's power 
for us. Father, help us fellowship with you, commune with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, as we've been looking in this series uh, of how we were created and sin comes in and mars God's creation, God's plan in salvation is to restore his image in us as his image bearers, but uniquely so, he's doing it in a way where he shares himself with us. And that's what Jesus is praying for. You know, this is the distinguishing factor between biblical Christianity and all other belief systems of the world. All belief systems and false Christianity lays out these criteria to accomplish personally, uh, personally with only the hope of being accepted by a divine power. Jesus prayed for his disciples that night. He prayed for us. So they would share God with God and also share God with one another. Jesus prayed for them to be in God and God in them. This is the miracle. No other belief system offers this. Every other belief system says, no, if you do enough, maybe possibly, hopefully, if you haven't offended that higher power, you'll be accepted and, and, and finally reach the peace and the satisfaction that you long for. Jesus said it's completely different. This is where God says, I will be in you. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to be around God. God's remedy to their rebellion was to restore his image by placing his presence inside of his people. As we walk, as we walk out biblical masculinity and, and fierce fem, biblical femininity, God is walking out his presence through us. That's what Ezekiel prophesied would happen in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let's pause for a second. Think about it. The God who said, let there be light. The God who tells all of the constellations, stay right there. Don't move. The God who tells the water that's crashing on the shoreline, this far, no farther. That God, when he speaks, everything obeys. If we are genuinely converted, that power, that God, is in us. Isn't that wild? Because I know... I always question the God who he tells all the constellations to stay put and they stay. And I'm like, God, I don't feel like you're near me enough. I don't feel like I connect with you enough. We have to remember what we have. And we have it through Christ. God's plan has always been to share himself with us. Now think of the love that we have in that Fellowship, think of the security that we have with being in God and God in us and what power that means for our daily living. His plan also includes our experience of God in God. God welcomes us into his relationship, his perfect 
oneness that Jesus prays for the disciples to experience. He's also wanting us to experience God with one another in the fellowship that we have as the one body of Christ. And here's the effect. That everybody looking on that oneness will desire that oneness and God's promise is, oh, if they repent, I'll bring them into this oneness. God shares himself. So, big thought for us. The call of God upon us as his restored image bearers is to share in his oneness so all will know his love. Let's uh, break this down and, and, and mine it a little bit. Uh, three things we'll look at. Divine oneness, uh, communal oneness, this, uh, thinking of the church, and then more specifically, uh, marital oneness as we look in the next coming weeks, how we'll look at what a biblical husband is and then the call of a biblical wife. All right, first, with divine oneness, it is soaked in mystery. Here in the short time I have, I'm going to try to explain the Trinity. Right, 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 right. Do you know the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the scriptures? It's nowhere. The theologians, uh, an Augustine, uh, a North African native, he said he came up with this triunity aspect because we see God revealed in three different ways all throughout Scripture. So Trinity comes from uh, the Latin word for three oneness. And that's what he was trying. And the theologians have, have sought to try to explain, here's what we see in Scripture. So that's where the word Trinity comes from. Now there's a certain mystery about God's essence that is completely inexpressible, and undescribable. And God, God does that on purpose because he lets us know he's God and we're man. That we can't explain him all the way. We want to. We think we can sometimes. And as soon as we have, we think we have this angle on how, maybe it's a particular doctrine or, or passage in scripture, we have this angle that we think it's not long after we go, ah, I don't know if that's right. That, because God is God. And it's, it's hard to explain him. And it's, parents, it's good for us to sometimes say, I don't know how God is that way to our kids. Because I think it sows an aspect of awe in them that's appropriate in growing in discipleship. Now we can explain what God does, what God does better than we can explain usually how he is. Remember how he revealed himself to Moses? God, who, who will I say sent me when I go before Pharaoh? I am who I am. Nobody in this world can express themselves as a verb. He just says, I am, is. is like think about it in English, is. What's your name? Is, am. God does that because he's completely other than us. Jesus' prayer even is mysterious. How does the Father exist in the Son and the Son in the Father? We, in our concept, have, we know side by side. And again, many the theologians have endeavored to help us understand how God exists as the great I Am. But our task is not so much to dissect the inworking of the Trinity, but to understand the implications of the reality of the Trinity. There's an ultimate how and why of God's existence. But what he's revealed to us is sufficient for us to fulfill our calling to dwell in him and to fellowship with one another. Now, what is this triunity? 
God is one God expressed in three persons. Each expression has its own personality and function while simultaneously being all one God at the same time. God is expressed in Scripture as Father, Son, and Spirit. Each is united in will. Each is united in purpose to accomplish God's glory being known over all the earth. God is expressed in three persons we, we trust to highlight his relational essence. God is an intensely relational being. And he exists, his very amness exists in relationship. God alone is God, but he is never alone. He is God alone, but he's never alone. Father, Son, and Spirit in this perfect oneness delight in joyful deference to the other members of their oneness. And this joyful sacrifice is the mark of their relationship, of God's relationship within himself. That's why Jesus' joyful sacrifice is the most glorious thing about his life on the earth. Now, as God exists in the Godhead, This is not like the gods of Mount Olympus in Greek mythology who just chose to cohabitate on a mountaintop. Now, these are real relationships that express what they are. There's a oneness there. And his creation of male and female, let us make man in our image, is an expression of his personhood, but also his distinctive in relationship. God wants to be in relationship with his creation. And he he creates Adam and Eve specifically for relationship. God is constantly in relationship with us through the son's sacrifice. And we are welcomed into that fellowship forever. Isn't it wild? Now, another important characteristic of this fellowship is that it is undivided. You know, I was thinking of the Fellowship of the Ring, the first Lord of the Rings... uh, Uh, movie and all through the movie as soon as the ring gets to certain person their mindset toward their fellowship begins to change and they begin to have self-centered thoughts god does not exist that way there is never a selfish thought no member of the trinity ever wants the glory and the excellence or, or the exaltation to be on them alone that's why they they defer to one another the son loves to bring uh exaltation to the Father. And the Father loves when the Spirit highlights the work of the Son. And the Spirit loves being behind the scenes, highlighting the will and authority of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son. There is a continual joyful sacrifice. Now, when they are undivided, it is critical not to give in to the temptation to separate the Trinity. God is perfect in His unity, and therefore He is undividable. Nor is there any confusion among his persons. They work perfectly together in their roles. Just as we have the role, uh, the distinctive roles of male and female, we'll see husband and wife and children. They, we, when we operate in those roles, we experience the blessing and the, the joy and perfect oneness of God himself. Now, you know, I've got to pick on a few examples that a lot of people try to use to describe the Trinity. In our attempts to describe the Trinity, we typically choose examples that separate him. 
not describe who he is. You know, our examples of God's three-in-oneness, they will all fall short. Every one of them. Because it's just, this is, we're trying to explain something that is unexplainable. I've heard the example of an egg. There's three parts to an egg, but it's one egg. I've heard uh, the example of apples. You have the skin, the, the, I don't know, the flesh, and what's the inside part? They eat. And then the core, whatever that little part is. You know what I'm talking about. And then I've also heard clover leaves used to express, where there's three leaves and one stem. It's one clover. Uh, those, all three of those, actually express what is called modalism. That God is in particular modes, and those modes never cross-pollinate. The, the, think of an egg. The yolk never is the shell, and the shell is never the yolk. And, and there was the Arian controversy was about that, that Jesus somehow was not all the Father. The Father wasn't all in him. Early church doctrine said, no, this, we have to highlight the Trinity. We have to highlight God's three-in-oneness. There, I, I've seen another example about water. Water in its three phases. It's water, but exists in those three phases. Uh, that's not a good example either, because that's what Michael Reeves, he wrote a book called Delighting in the Trinity, excellent resource. He said, that's actually moodalism. I said, I like that, <laughs> because we interact with God as if he's, the Father's in a bad mood and the Son needs to come, and his patience and temper, the Father, where he ap- operates in this, whatever mood he feels like, that's what he operates in. That's what water would represent. It's God is God. He is one God, but yet he has revealed himself to us as Father, heavenly, loving Father. As Son, who now we get to be co-heirs with in this fellowship, and the Spirit who gives us power to experience God and live in the light of that experience. We affirm this truth. And we want to study the implications of the truth. Jesus prayed for two implications of this truth for his disciples. The first one was glory. He says that they would have the glory that we've had since before the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus said he gave the the glory that he had, he gave to his disciples. And the glory he gave was with the Father from before the foundation of the world. What is he talking about? You think about the expressions of glory in the Old Testament. Where when God's presence revealed, was revealed in a powerful light. Think of Moses' face shining after he was with God on Mount Sinai. Think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his flesh, all of his being became bright, intensely white. So white that it changed the color of his garments. These are two examples among several in Scripture of God's glory. It's a, it's a shining thing. The glory Jesus referenced is the Holy Spirit himself. So what is he saying? He's praying for the Father. I've given them my glory, and I pray that they be in your glory, the same glory that we had before the foundation of the world. He's talking about, which is often the forgotten member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, a few scriptures to highlight. Jesus described the Spirit's role to the disciples in John 14 and 16. And he said that, that his, uh, the Spirit will be given to bring to remembrance, highlight, 
illuminate minds. And that's where we have that word illumination as the Spirit's uh, role in the lives of disciples. The Holy Spirit is the, the glory in luminous form outwardly in the Old Testament and inwardly now in New Testament Christianity. The Holy Spirit is the light that God dwells in. So that's 1 Timothy 6, 16. He dwells in unapproachable light. That's the glory from before the foundation of the world. And the Father speaks the Holy Spirit into the hearts of every believer. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that light shine in the hearts. Apostle Paul said, now we walk in the light as he is in the light. 1 John 1, 7. Now, and then Matthew 5, 16, when Jesus said, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is praying for all of us to know the oneness that we have with God in the power and presence, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the one that hovered over everything and was waiting and ready for God to say, let there be light. And that same Spirit is in us, waiting to accomplish the will of the Father. And he will accomplish that will. And now the second implication of this glorious trinity is love. Jesus prays for all of his disciples to experience first God's love and then love in their relationships. All that God does is love. Remember, he works all things according to his love, essentially. He is love, 1 John 4, 8, and all he does is from his love, so we will know his love. Jesus' obedient sacrifice defines God's love, it demonstrates God's love, it distinguishes his love as sacrificial, and it demands love in return. That's the Savior that we have. His, his, his example is so compelling that we have to respond in order to be in his love. And now his love is the foundation of God's oneness, and it's the foundation for our oneness as church. Here is communal oneness. First, communion with God. We each cooperate with the Lord. Our personal lives should be in the light and in the love of Jesus. Why reading scripture, praying, worshiping, journaling, meditating, all of the disciplines that we have uh, are not in order to get God's acceptance. They're to realize the experience that we have in his oneness. And then we have in Scripture, there's communion in the church. There's oneness for the church. As the Father is the head of the Son, the Son is the head of the church in love. And His love cascades down to everybody. Now within this communion, I think we have the experience of a glorious love within the church. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jump into verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What's the work of ministry? It should be to experience the glory of God. Now have that in mind as we look at so we all attain to the unity of faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is looking to make Jesus great and make us into Jesus so we reflect him and understand him and know him. So all of us, we are looking to do ministry, the work of ministry. That shows up in serving. That shows up in the, the, the categories of being the hands and feet of Jesus. Where, wherever our feet are, that's supposed to happen. Wherever on the globe our feet are, that's the work of ministry. But the work of ministry is highlighting the glory of God and, and, and having a compelling example of what's happening on the inside. That's why the effect of the church is evangelism. When we really are loving God as he's called us to and we're experiencing fellowship with him, it will be enticing to people who look on it because they, they crave it as well. They're looking for that. We need to be in relationship with others so they can ask us those types of questions. Remember he said that they may be, be, all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also, verse 21, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Evangelism and the Great Commission is always the response of living the life that God calls for us. We are supposed to be that light, shining that light, so others will see it and be saved. Take a, a quick landscape or inventory, rather, of the people in your life. The people maybe that you interact with uh, on a regular basis. If they do not have the Spirit of God in them, they stand right now looking toward an eternity apart from God in his terrifying, horrific wrath in hell. Remember in Mark chapter 9, it says that weird, this weird phrase that uh, they'll be salted with fire. Back then, salt was used as a preservative. So the fire actually has a preserving effect to continue the suffering. And that's who our loved ones, that's who our co-workers, who were tempted just to want to send to hell. That's what they face, y'all. And we should... We should be ready for the moments that God will bring to us for somebody to hear the good news. We should be ready. It's okay to look for a meal, have fun. Be ready, though. Be ready to share the hope that we have. When we have God in us, the world should take notice and be enticed to believe Jesus is the Messiah. And now as this distills down even further in our relationships within the church, we have a marital oneness. Here are three scriptures, Genesis 2, 4, Matthew 19, 5, and Ephesians 5, 31. Uh, Ma- Jesus in Matthew refers to Genesis, and then Paul in Ephesians turns uh, refers to Genesis, and that what the husband and wife, the man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. The result of this oneness is a, and this is, this is again to set up uh, the next couple of weeks as we talk about husbands and wives. The result of oneness is joyous blessing from God, his shalom. 
that peace and that fullness that he gives. There's a spiritual oneness that is to take place in the marriage context. There's an emotional oneness. There's a physical oneness. There's not to be cohabitation. There's to be oneness. And this physical oneness is ultimately that sexual intimacy that God has given husbands and wives as a gift. Now, attempts to reorder or rearrange what God has said is the blessing of marriage, whether that be homosexual relationships, whether it be uh, living together, not married, uh, fornication, whether it's transgender lifestyles, any attempt to reorder or rearrange what God has created and what he calls blessed really does not bring blessing. It actually dehumanizes us. It mars the image further and distorts the image. What promises freedom only brings more constraint. But we are in need of husbands and wives living in the light of Christ, in your roles as husbands and wives, so the world can take notice. The world is confused. Sadly, Christian husbands and wives are very confused. And we we need to have understanding, but we also need to be able to walk in God's blessing. Now, a word on singleness. Uh, singles, your oneness is primarily with Jesus in the body of Christ. Your shining with the luminous glory of God is not incomplete, it's not insufficient, or is it insignificant? Your singleness is a gift. Remember, your Savior was single on this earth. There, there's probably a hope, maybe one day, if there's a hope there. But where the hope is deferred, take joy in the Savior's gift for you. You are a shining light of Jesus. He was no less a shining light as a, as a, a man in a, as a bodily man, God, God in man. He was no less God at that moment. You are no less shining for whatever season the Lord has you in. Take joy in the Savior's grace to walk out your life. Now here's our concluding encouragement. Pursue oneness, church. That is ahead of us. Specifically and particularly, avoid what is separating to us. And these things, I bring these up because I think they, uh, they're too easy and we don't recognize them and their sneakiness about us. Uh, the first category would be ignoring needs. When you just don't have time to help other people. Unrepentant sin. That's a separating, that's a dividing of the oneness of God in our relationships. A lack of communication. I say this because there are conversations that should happen, but they don't out of fear or we just want to ignore the problem and hope it goes away. But when we show up at church, we know there's an uneasiness about our fellowship with one another. We need to talk it through. You need help? Ask. Trying to figure out, we don't even know what the problem is. We just don't talk to each other. That could be husband and wife. be parent-child. be members of the same church. When we're called to walk in, in the unity that God expresses himself in. And also, this means that we don't isolate ourselves. 
There's isolation. The church, a member, we're one body and a member of that body going off and never surfacing ever. And now is the time to, we, gotta, we have to be diligent with, with the, you know, the pandemic has created separation and isolation. But now when we can get back together, we've got to be careful that we're not choosing comfort over, no, my soul needs to be around the people of God. I don't want to isolate myself. Encouragement, 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the truth of your word now would sink deep into our hearts because, Lord, left up to ourselves, we don't make sense. We need your illumination, Holy Spirit. We need you to help us through. And Lord, we ask more than anything that in this, uh, every one of us needs the oneness that we have with you and with one another. And we pray, God, that we first would have that oneness in you. So it will be a reality in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families. Lord, I pray you would stir a fire and a passion for all of us to spend time with you. And may it be refreshing. May it truly be a, a, a river in a, a spiritually desert landscape, maybe that our hearts and minds are experiencing. God, help us. Holy Spirit, be rivers of living water welling up inside of us. Please, that your glory may be known. We love you. In Jesus' name.